0: Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damian Thompson. This week, a wonderful yet poignant slice of social history. Goodbye to Catholic Ireland was the title of a very good book published back in the 90s by my guest Mary Kenny, one of Ireland's and Britain's best-known and best-loved journalists, who's also a social historian and a playwright. To coincide with the centenary of the Irish Free State in 2022, she's writing another book, The Way We Were, which will look back, using lots of unpublished original material, at a world which seems even now more irretrievably lost – that of the Irish Catholic Church, which was so powerful in Irish society until the 1980s. For many people, Irish Catholicism has become synonymous with scandal, repression and cruelty. Mary offers a more nuanced picture, but a fascinating one which highlights the aspirations, the petty snobberies and the fervent faith of a church that until fairly recently seemed indestructible. I've known you for many years, Mary, and I think it was back in the 90s that you were writing a book called Goodbye to Catholic Ireland, which is an absolutely terrific read. And you're now writing another book about Ireland.
1: Well, it's kind of revisiting Catholic Ireland in a way which has disappeared even more now. and seems to be very much in the past. So I suppose it's a a sort of another farewell. But also um, I'm calling it the way we were so that it's also a sort of panoramic view, but with a lot of emphasis now on biography, on people on individual people and on characters. The Irish state came into being in 1922 after the Anglo-Irish Treaty. It was called the Irish Free State. It was still a dominion at the time. It wasn't a republic till 1949. So 2022 is in a way the 100th anniversary of the Irish state, of an Irish independent state. And of course, it was a very Catholic state to begin with, and it remained so throughout most of the 20th century. But there were also sort of um, uh, sort of quirky elements of that early Catholic state. For example, the, there was a Senate in the first Irish state. And in order to kind of try to be inclusive, the new Irish state appointed quite a lot of old Anglo-Irish peers and various belted earls who were almost all Protestant, into the Senate. And, uh, of course, this, I I think, was a very good gesture to try to, as I say, be a bit inclusive and and to try to retain also some of the old Anglo-Irish, many of whom were leaving because they'd been attacked by the IRA. But they were, they made a contribution to the building of the Irish state. And some of them were also in the great tradition of being eccentric aristocrats as well and that was kind of a, quite a sort of little colourful side so well, I, I, suppose... I
0: remember I, I had a driving instructor and I never did pass my exam but I, I had a driving instructor who had been an Anglo-Irish toff he'd been in the Indian army he was a wonderful eccentric he insisted that we had a swig of vodka before I took my test that rather aristocratic voice of people that people at first thought it was English but then you listened hard and you could hear it was Irish but um It's a fascinating topic, Mary, because when I heard you were writing another book about Ireland, I thought, well, if the 1990s was goodbye to Catholic Ireland, now it's really gone. Yes. You have this sad paradox that a country which was intensely Catholic, Southern Ireland, has now become, in my experience of talking to young people, intensely hostile to the Catholic Church. Yes, that's right. In a way that we've never been in this country, because, of course, the Church of England has played a completely different role in our lives. And Irish Catholicism has acquired the reputation of being something that was socially rather repressive and theologically, you always hear this phrase, theologically Jansenist, concentrating very much on the terrors of hell and the ever-present danger of sin. And you hear about villages in which were, in some cases, sort of terrorised by the priest who ruled with as his fiefdom. And I'm wondering to what extent that was true. Certainly, when the Irish Free State was set up, it did, I think I'm right in saying, just hand over the education to the Catholic Church, full stop. So the Catholic Church really was very, very powerful in the new state. And I wonder... Well, I suppose I'm asking, what's the balance between the good and the bad things in The Way We Were, to quote the title
1: of the book? Well, the thing is that, you know, when the new state started up in 1922, and in some ways it was very like Brexit, because what you had was a very, well, not all the parallels are right, more conservative people said to Irish nationalists, you're leaving the British Empire, you're mad, The British Empire is the most important thing on the globe and you're going to go out on your own and start a poor, struggling little state of under three million people. How do you think you're going to survive in the big world? So it was a fledgling state and most of the people who the politicians and the civil servants, above all, who were stewarding this state were themselves products of Catholic education. Many of them were very well educated by the Jesuits, particularly, and also by the Christian brothers. huge number of higher civil servants had come from modest backgrounds, and they had been schooled by the Christian brothers. And so that was part of the infrastructure. And of course, they turned to the Catholic Church to provide this education, which would You needed educated people in a new state. You needed people who knew how to be administrators and engineers and managers and all the rest of it. So in a way, it's certainly true that the Catholic Church exploited its power. But it's also true that the state exploited the Catholic Church for what it could contribute to building up this new country.
0: I was i am in a funny way the product of an irish education in that i was educated in reading by the presentation brothers they were founded by ignatius rice who also founded the christian brothers and what actually happened is that the the presentation brothers are the original ones from cork and they refused to adopt the new constitution that would have made them the christian brothers so they were like the primitive christian brothers but they wore My goodness you could tell how times changed when i arrived at the school at the age of 10 in the early 70s the brothers all wore these grand augustinian habits and by the end they were beginning to dispense with clerical attire completely and some of them were changing their names back from their religious names to their real names but my point is that it was a rather eccentric education that bit of it we received from the brothers maybe they sent the odd ones over to England. I did hear that that was the case, and they had wonderful names: Brother Athanasius, Brother Fidelis, Brother Virgilius, Brother Leander, Brother Antonio, who's now Brother Barry. But I didn't necessarily pick up what I've been told later, which was that there was a hard side to Irish Catholicism, yes. which of course. perhaps was there before it was handed power by the Irish Free State, which was a rather unsmiling side. It was different from Mediterranean Catholicism. In that it had processions, it had this great devotion to the Virgin Mary, but there wasn't the same sense of fiesta, if you like, of feast days, of easygoing spirituality. Do you think that's true?
1: I think it's true for some people, Damien. I mean, I think there was also... Uh, Corpus Christi was a very big day in my childhood, and the 8th of December had a very, a, a sort of a, a fiesta thing, because my mother...
0: had Immaculate Conception.
1: My mother called it Our Lady's Birthday.
0: Yes, my uh, grandmother called it that too.
1: And on this yeah. day, on the 8th of December, there was a big general department store in Dublin called Cleary's. Cleary's was, you got everything in Cleary's from, you know, fur coats, corsets, religious medals, you know, furniture, whatever you wanted. It was one of those department stores that had a bit of everything. And it was greatly favoured by country people. And on the 8th of December every year, the country people used to use this time of their feast day to come up and shop at Cleary's, you know. So there was... A sort of um, mixture of, if you like, the sort of worldly pleasures with religious things. My own mother took this a little bit further, actually. She was very devoted to the chapel of the Miraculous Medal in Paris, which is in the Rue du Bac. Um, and of course, it's a beautiful, beautiful chapel. And a wonderfully sort of feminine confection, you know, of the Our Lady with the stars and blue skies and really really beautiful um, and st- always very popular with women incidentally I noticed that the last time I was there but my mother noticed that the Rue de Bac was terribly convenient to Galerie Lafayette and uh, also Au Printemps and the Marché and all the lovely department stores so there was that link between shopping and church going which was kind of quite a jolly thing so i would say there was still an element of that but i think i think there could be a a very hard side as well and i think probably this some of that comes from poverty really comes from the fact that a lot of priests were farmer's sons they really scraped uh, living from from the soil sometimes you know it was it was a hard life and there were very big families to feed and all the rest of it and i think this did breed a kind of austerity and a sense of hardship and when you look at um, memoirs and autobiographies um, of the period of the 20s and 30s that all comes out there's a wonderful memoir called 19 acres by a journalist called John John Healy and he called this 19 acres because that was the size of the farm on which he grew up and you know can you imagine going to somewhere in England like Berkshire and go to a farmer and say you've got 19 acres you know to, to raise a family on you know well so he describes this upbringing in in County Mayo of the 19 acres and the the prudence and the carefulness with which life was approached because it was on the edge so much all the time. And I suppose that was brought into their faith as well. I mean, one of the things that I remember he talks about is they were very, very careful about who they might marry and who would be, what woman would be brought into this fragile dynasty. If the son, the eldest son, married, shall we say, a flighty young woman. Who was off on the gin and tonics or whatever it was, the, the 19 acres would be destroyed, you know, so they had this prudence. At the same time they also had this pride, which I think you find in peasant societies actually. Um, so when the day came that uh, the old mother was allowed to have a free television license, she refused the free television license and she said, we didn't fight for our independence to be given free TV by the government, which was a very interesting kind of pride thing. So you, you, you get an insight into the psychology of people who lived very, very hard lives often. And, you know, maybe five of the six children would go to America and make their lives there.
0: Indeed. And of course, you know, memories of the famine, not that far in the past True. back yes. in 1922. Quite um, so, you talk I was watching a great interview with you the other day on YouTube, and you talked about respectability as a sort of cult yes. among well, it's in middle class Irish, but you know all Irish who wanted to make a wanted to make a living. It's tremendously yes. important to be seen to be respectable people. that makes Amazing. them almost sound a little bit more like Scottish Presbyterians or something. Yes than um, the easygoing Irish, because but the, the cult of respectability I find very interesting.
1: Yes, well I think it does go in other societies too, Damien, and I think it goes a lot with striving, you know, when when you come from modest circumstances, and of course Richard Hoggart's great book, The Uses of Literacy, uh, describes so well the, I think, growing up in, in Leeds, and I think that would have been the 1920s and 30s as well, where respectability was terribly, terribly important. Also, this comes into... There's a very famous broadcaster in Ireland who died just last year called Gay Byrne. And he writes oh, about...
0: Me, the Late Late Show, yeah.
1: The Late Late Show. And, and he writes about his childhood growing up in Dublin. And it's, it's very similar to what Richard Hoggart describes, where a good husband is a man who comes home and hands over an unopened wage packet to his wife on a Friday night. And she opens the wage packet and she gives him back some pocket money for his beer and his tobacco. And the mother then takes total control of the house, because that's the only way this house is going to survive, you know. And unfortunately, the the wild bad husband is the guy who goes to the pub you know on the friday night and it's a very strong theme in in irish life in the in the 30s and 40s this striving for respectability and maybe it's maybe it's because when you come from very modest circumstances respectability becomes very important and i think uh, it's also linked to a very strong sense of family sometimes, that respectability, because, you know, you mustn't let down your family. And the family is can be a support, but it can also be a tyranny.
0: You and know I what? imagine the little sort of gradations of social status mattered quite a lot. I mean, for example, you talk about the Jesuits and the Christian brothers. Well, whether you were educated by the Jesuits or the Christian brothers, made quite a difference I think because was a class, and obviously the Jesuits yes, were was, yes. more educated than the Christian brothers.
1: And, and also Damien you would have to pay no, modestly, but still you'd have to pay to go to the to, to the Jesuit schools. As we know James Joyce and all his brothers were educated at the Jesuit schools, even though the father I mean uh, must have been an amusing man James Joyce's father, but also a bit of an do well as I mean he kept going down in the world and so he he didn't actually always pay the fees of James Joyce to goes, you know and this is true to the, this day i mean you've got people like michael o'leary the dynamic head of ryanair he is a product of a jesuit irish jesuit education very much so which is you know go getting you know, go for the best, you are the best. Whereas Bob Geldof, too, is a product. He's a product of the Holy Ghost Fathers in Black Rock, who who also educated de Valera. And the Holy Ghost Fathers are very, very strong. Of course, it was a a, a French missionary order, the Saint-Esprit, and the Holy Ghost Fathers were very keen on missions in Africa. So I think it was no coincidence that Bob Geldof Took up his own mission to, you know, relieve famine in Ethiopia. You know, I think I think that was part of his formation. The Christian Brothers, of course, they more educated working class boys, and they were they could be brutal. You know, they could beat the hell out of kids as well. You know, and
0: so I hear. Um, I never experienced it. Maybe the Presentation Brothers were different. There was this tremendous. I don't know how friendly it was, but animosity between the two orders founded by the same yes. man didn't experience much violence, and I must say I liked the brothers. There was one brother who'd uh, belt boys round the, round. yeah, you know, he'd smack them round the head in a way that would get him into very serious trouble today. Um, yeah. Mind she-
1: you, Damien, I think the same thing was going on at Eton.
0: I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. It's just I didn't I didn't know any we did once Eaton once played us at football, um, and that is our sole claim of the school to social grandeur. But the yeah, fertility of the Irish family. Um, yeah. there is, I think, an underlying anxiety about certain social problems, and you might say that they were inherited, not inherited, but they're influenced by the experience of British colonialism, which was not kind to the Irish to put it mildly but there was the problem of drink and there was a problem of domestic violence and these were very real things in the experience of so many Irish families weren't there and I sometimes think we have to bear that in mind when we read about these terrible abuse cases or cases of not necessarily sexual abuse but you know brutal exploitation but this is something lurking in the background and you talk about the mother handing out beer money to the husband. Well, there might have been a practical reason for that because it was quite easy, I think, to slide into heavy drinking in certain parts of Ireland.
1: Uh, The Irish are, certainly until recently, the Dermot Ferriter's study of drinking in, in Ireland, a nation of extremes, he calls it. The Irish were both among the heaviest drinkers in Europe and also among the most stern teetotalers.
0: The pioneers.
1: Yeah, the pioneers. So you had that extreme of people who were very heavy boozers and then pioneers. And of course, the church actually supported the pioneers and the temperance movements, as did Sinn Féin in the early years. And when Sinn Féin started in 1905, the first slogan was, Ireland sober is Ireland free. They were They were very much kind of copying, in a way, the Methodists, you know, about how raise up the poor man by avoiding drink because it, drink was of course it's always been a an affliction of family life even to this day I understand everywhere in domestic abuse situations if 75 percent of them involved drink you know so uh, I, I
0: remember at school there was a brother who's absolutely lifelong pioneer called brother Athanasius but at the Christmas yes. party at least the staff party um, and I was quite friendly with some of my teachers, and I'm lucky enough still to be friendly with three of them. Brother Athanasius would turn up with the pachin. He didn't drink it himself because he had absolutely no idea how strong alcohol was. If pour yeah. you poured your whiskey, it would be virtually half a pint. He had absolutely yeah. no idea. Uh, he'd turn up with the pachine and say, well, well, people are like this. But um, that was a ferociously strong drink, wasn't it?
1: Oh, dreadful. Was dangerous. <laughs> moonshine and dreadful stuff really my uncle was a psychiatric doctor in limerick where they had it was called the lunatic asylum at the time it was now called a psychiatric clinic but the cases where people had actually gone mad from drinking poutine and also they'd committed murders and things under the influence of poutine so it was it was really horror but nevertheless it went on this illegal distilling and it it goes on. I mean, it goes on in Sweden, apparently. It's wherever drink is expensive. I'm afraid people do distill their own, but there is a change in poutine these days, which is kind of reflects the changes of the times that clever young chemistry graduates are now adding much nicer tastes to pochine, you know, so they know how to make it more palatable because I remember the only time I tasted it, it it tasted very like what I imagine petrol tastes like.
0: I think I was poured a glass by Brother Athanasius. It was strong stuff. That wasn't a problem for me. I had a natural inclination in that direction. I wonder whether these social problems partly explain the sternness of the Irish church. And there's no doubt about it, despite the popular devotions, Despite the fervent Catholicism of so many Catholics, a lot of the clergy were very hard and they preached a very hard message from the pulpits, didn't they?
1: I suppose that is true. But although I would make a distinction between Dublin and and rural, and I grew up in Dublin, where on the whole, the priests were rather easygoing. I mean, in Sandymount in Dublin was terribly, terribly good looking Priest called Father O'Connell. He looked a bit like uh, Tyrone Power, you know, a movie actor. (laughs) And all the ladies of the parish, all they wanted was to play bridge with Father O'Connell, you know. (laughs) So, I mean, it was like a sort of Barbara Pym novel, you know. I love those
0: Barbara Pym novels, I absolutely adore them. It was
1: terribly And then there was another priest who was very, very shy called Father Gunning. And he came, I think, from the north of Ireland, and he was very, very blonde head, blondy kind of coloring, but frightfully shy. But his great accomplishment was that he could say mass in 15 minutes.
0: That was a precious gift indeed. A priest who said, mass <laughs>
1: and, and Damien, this was, this was a Latin mass,
0: oh, remember? Terrific. terrific. Well, I, I, I remember there was a priest in the neighboring parish, and we used to go there occasionally. And it wasn't a very appealing church, so he was, he was a nice priest, but he was Irishman, of course, all the priests were Irish. And yes. um, he got through Mass so quickly. People flocked from miles around, a quick Mass. It was a wonderful thing. I know. But then it taps into something else. There's a book called Why Catholics Can't Sing. Can't Sing, by a by great
1: everyone.
0: book. It's a great book, and it looks at... The, if you like, the lack of beauty, aesthetic concerns in the yes. Irish liturgy. And it explains that these yes. things, beauty and solemnity, they're associated with the Anglicans. And yes. they didn't want to be anything like them. And yes. therefore, there was a sort of inverted snobbery, which I certainly picked up at my school presentation college. Yes. They were interested, yes. some of the arts are interested in poetry. Um, they were interested in Irish music very much. Our, our, Much Missed Brother Joseph was a barn dance caller, but no (laughs) interest in music, which which was my particular passion. So, yes, there was a certain plainness that went along with it. And so getting through Mass quickly, since the Mass itself was unlikely to be celebrated in an aesthetically pleasing fashion, you can understand why people wanted to get through it. I mean, yeah, I, I always are, wanted to get through it. It was yeah. your son, Ed West, the great writer, who said to me, "When you hear the words, the mass is ended, instant dopamine hit." <laughs>
1: <laughs> of course, and I—I I, I mean, I remember an Englishman, who was an Anglican, going to Ireland, and he it came back and um, saying to me. You know the thing about the Irish church is that, like, they're business-like about it. This is something you do, so you go in and you—it's you, your business—and you get it done. You know. But I suppose, on a more serious note, Damien, about the background, was that—I mean, you mentioned the famine, and before then you had the penal times and so on, and the tradition of Irish mass going was people attending mass on a in a rock. Or, the mass was actually said on a rock somewhere in the in the wilds of the countryside. So there was a very very simple tradition, and I suppose the beauty, what you see in Anglican faith, and also you see in the Italian church as well, that comes really from affluence, doesn't it? It comes from the fact that people have the time and the leisure and the culture, if you like. No, receive... I, I, I agree, and
0: there's, there's no doubt in the fervency of so much Irish Catholicism I remember once walking in and hearing the Legion of Mary, I think I talked about this on a previous podcast, saying the Hail Mary together, and it was like a competitive race. Hail Mary! Holy Mary! It's so, it's so fast, But um, and it was you who taught me this wonderful phrase, eating the altar rails. Could you yes. just explain what eating the altar rails is?
1: <laughs> I mean, there, were, there was lots of mockery of people who were too holy. You know, the Holy Joes. There's another very disparaging word for the Holy Joes. Crawthumpers, you know, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, thumping their <laughs> That's the crawthumper who's always suspected of being a hypocrite. Ate in the altar rails are the people who are over-anxious, over-zealous, and there'd be a sort of a line of mockery about people like that, too, you know. So it wasn't all stern and so on. There were, I mean, I think I've come to realise, Damien, in, in my old age now, priests are just like everybody else. They're just guys like everybody else. They come in all shapes and sizes and... All kinds of, some of them are domineering and bossy and some of them are funny and kind of eccentric or whatever. But there were priests who certainly used their power and they had been described, they were described originally by, I think, a 19th century historian as a native nobility. So that when the Anglo-Irish nobility receded, really, the priests became almost the local nobility, the local head man, mm. you know. Um, and so in many, many cases, they didn't take power. They were given power, quite often. That's
0: interesting. And I, I certainly remember watching a programme about one of the worst abusers of recent years. I think it was called Father Sean Fountain. And yes. he ran his village really like his personal fiefdom. Not so much of his life was controlled yes. by him. And even growing up in, well, a very, very overwhelmingly Irish town, as far as Catholicism was concerned, Reading, obviously the priests had perhaps a tremendous prestige that the Anglican vicar doesn't, because the sort of sacramental powers of the priest are that much more elevated in the eyes of believers. And of course, it was a great honor, wasn't it, for, to become a priest's mother. She yes. was somebody respected in the village yes. because her son was a priest. My son, the and priest, would say. a bit like a she, Jewish mother saying, "My son, the yes. doctor."
1: Yes, she was assured of a place in heaven. Well, you
0: know, it, you know, it, my grandmother wasn't Irish, but her mother was Irish, and my grandmother was—I say to all intents and purposes Irish. She looked Irish. She had an Irish temper. I mean, it sounds like I'm stereotyping her, but the Irish gene runs very strongly, and it's been passed on to me without any doubt. Anyway, my grandmother wanted my father to be a priest, and when he didn't become one, she was absolutely furious, because I think she wanted to be a priest's mother. Yes,
1: I know. And I mean, I've heard that phrase said too, that sometimes it was the mother who had the vocation, pushed the young man into the And and that didn't, you know, that was often really didn't work out well at all, and I suppose like everything else, is a big mixture of things, I think. There was sincere piety, and it was the most beautiful thing for the mother to be the first person that her son blessed as he was ordained, you know. But I suppose there was also a worldly side to it, increase in status, you know as it were. I mean, back my elder brother, Carlos, was born in the late 1920s. He said, you know, he was familiar with priests in Dublin in the 40s and 50s. I heard him say one day, oh, if only I could have given up the women, I'd have loved to have been a priest. The best wine, the best restaurants, the best libraries, you know, and also in those days, it was very common to see a priest at the racecourse. You know, and they were always coming to Cheltenham and so on. I had a great uncle who was a priest, and it was my mother's greatest boast that he had the best stable of hunters in the whole of (laughs) Conor. And I mean, this was the boast. And also, by the way, he had a wine cellar as well with excellent claret. Very much a notion of, of a local nobility. And sometimes, as I say, it was the lay people who gave the priest this power, They gave him the status and so on. I mean, my mother had to, when she was going to college, she went to the local Church of Ireland rector for a, a reference for college. And the Church of Ireland rector, who was called the Reverend French, two small f's French, and he was a kinsman of the Earl of Clancarty. And he was apparently an absolutely beautiful gentleman who had a silver tea service and a maid in livery and beautiful Victorian furniture. And my mother said, why can't our priests be like that? Our priests are such simple country boys. We'd like them to, you know, have a maid in livery and... (laughs) And, and a silver tea service. So, I mean, you had that thing of they wanted the priests to be special. And of course, once a group of people gets power, some of them will abuse it for sure.
0: And some of them certainly did. Obviously, the abuse scandals, which were particularly severe in Ireland, and also, I think I would say the Irish diaspora in America and Australia and Canada and some extent here obviously the scandals had a tremendous corrosive effect on the the morale of Irish Catholics and we have seen a really astonishingly fast collapse of a whole culture of Irish Catholicism to the point where you know in some ways Ireland is one of the least Catholic Catholic countries in Europe now isn't it The, the hostility of young Irish people towards the church sometimes a sort of I'm thinking hostility well they're all kiddie fiddlers or they were all tyrants or 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 whatever it's almost as a caricature a sort of malign father ted has taken a grip on the irish imagination and things have swung the other way
1: well I think in terms of actual church attendance The Irish church is kind of holding up. It's up there with Italians and the the Greeks. The Greeks are are the best churchgoers in Europe, according to Pew, I believe. But it's mostly older people, of course, who go to church and younger Irish people have a generally or frequently have a very dark and hostile view of the Catholic Church quite often they've just taken one dimension and they, as you say, the the, the accounts of the, the scandals, the clerical scandals, and also, I think, upsetting stories of cruel nuns in orphanages where young unmarried mothers were sent. And that was actually, I think, a product of the culture of respectability, because these unmarried mothers were very often put into mother and baby homes by their own families
0: that's a terrible thing
1: but the family didn't want to be disgraced as they would have seen it by the an unmarried mother's pregnancy and so the, these nuns were running these mother and baby homes again like any group of individuals some of them were nasty but some of them were quite kind and helpful in many cases They were absolutely overrun sometimes. They might have 30 babies in a small ward or something to look after. And these were, after all, unmarried women themselves. They were consecrated virgins. So I think that was very influential, that picture, those stories about the way in which Catholic Ireland and the Irish state as well, hand in glove, and the families really rejected and were unkind to the single mothers. In England and Scotland, unmarried mothers were stigmatized in many societies, we have to say. In Scotland, there was a better record, actually, of making the fathers of these children take responsibility. Now, that's one of the big failures of Irish society. They did not hunt down the fathers so much. The fathers tended to get off scot-free, whereas Scottish society Certainly in in Glasgow, they had ways of getting hold of the fathers and saying, listen, you made this girl pregnant, You, you take responsibility. And that didn't happen so much in Ireland.
0: I think another factor, this is a theory of mine, about the precipitate decline of Irish Catholicism, might actually be the attitude of the church itself, which after Vatican II became really damagingly hostile towards traditional devotions. I remember talking to Brilliant young academic Stephen Bullivant, who argues that the problem with the Vatican II is that it made the mass the centre of absolutely everything. Um, yes. Participation in the mass, which favoured you know, middle-class articulate people who yes. wanted to express themselves, yes. became tremendously important. Well, certainly in the parish where I grew up, you know, the men stayed at the back and they went out for a cigarette during the sermon. All, all of them, every single one of them, Irish. All those pious organizations not maybe so much the svp but the legion of mary i remember a jesuit priest telling me that in a big parish in london the legion of mary were always at the back of the queue after the you know after the second vatican council there'd be the justice and peace people very very bossy and some of them were irish irish women mm-hmm. themselves actually but the new generation mm-hmm. of irish catholics sort of mary macaulese types and various other organizations at the very back of the queue were the legion of mary who wanted to say the rosary in church because that was no longer fashionable it was thought to be retrograde and to some extent a new generation of priests were actually rather keen on sweeping away the organizations to which you know our parents and grandparents belonged mine certainly did belong to them very enthusiastically
1: Yes, and I think it should be said, actually, the Legion of Mary was one organization which really tried to help unmarried mothers, as they call them. From the 1930s onwards, they had hostels and they helped single mothers who didn't want to place their children for adoption. They were a genuinely exercised Christian charity, and they also helped prostitutes a lot. But uh, you're so right, Damien, a lot of the old devotions were swept away. There was a kind of Tremendous enthusiasm for the Vatican II reforms, which I remember so well, especially among nuns. And I think this was a little bit of a reaction. I mean, nuns until 1962, certainly 1960, were wearing 17th century habits, 17th century habits, which were quite extraordinarily uncomfortable to begin with. Um they had to be starched and wimples which cut their foreheads and so on. Uh, they were very infantilized. A nun couldn't go to the dentist without being accompanied by a sixth-form pupil really in, in. they had very archaic and they really were overdue for reforms. So nuns sort of broke out suddenly, and they were terribly keen on these charismatic things because I suppose they were able to express themselves kind of emotionally and go around hugging people. There was also quite a nice ecumenical side, I think, especially in Ireland, where barriers were broken down with Protestant neighbors. And there had been, you know, Irish Catholics didn't go into Protestant churches and vice versa, and that was broken down. And there was a sort of new neighborliness about wanting to be friends and in the community with the Protestant neighbors. And I remember John Hogan, professor at Dublin City University, and he wrote a very nice account of how this was changing neighbourhood relations in Ireland and that there was a certain amount of worry in parts of Connemara and Clare that there wouldn't be enough Protestants to go round. (laughs) You started seeing all these articles about and Martin Luther was really quite a good guy, really. <laughs> you know, and one there, was,
0: forgets, so, there were Protestants south of the border as well as north of the border, yeah. and not all Irish Protestants were Anglo-Irish. Top. No, for example, absolutely. Graham Norton comes from. Yes, um, yeah. Um, yeah well, I've never forgiven Queen. him for for being rude about you in public. I feel like marching Graham Norton up to you and saying, "We actually met, Mary."
1: <laughs> I see you well. <laughs> so, so I think there was a, it was all mixed up certainly so a lot of the beautiful old devotions because as you say there wasn't much aesthetics in the same way as the church of england but there were these especially marian devotions they were quite beautiful in their own way you know the i remember in in the month of may you know we would have these beautiful processions in our convent gardens and we would all sing the litany of the blessed virgin which of course, again, James Joyce puts into uh, I think the Portrait of the Artist as one of the most beautiful poems. These uh, continual uh, evocations of Mary, Tower of David, House of Gold, Ark of the Covenant, Morning Star, Help of Sinners, and each one is ora pro nobis. And of course, these there was great beauty, and that all went. And I think and, that in was...
0: indeed because there still is great beauty to it, and... Paradoxically, I think you can find more of it in England, at least in terms of the formal devotions, than you can in Ireland. Because there is a sort of young traditionalist revival going on in England, which does have some influential priests on its side, who say the Latin Mass, and who encourage all the devotions that went with the pre-Vatican II spirituality. But in Ireland, the hierarchy is still very rigidly... Vatican II, intensely distrustful of the Latin mass, intensely reluctant to give permission for it. And yeah. so I get the feeling that the recovery of traditional Catholicism isn't happening in Ireland to the same. Extent. Certainly
1: among lay Catholics, I think there's a lot of, there's a feeling that the leadership is very weak and that uh, I suppose they've lost confidence in themselves and so on. And they're very, very compliant with what the state tells them to do, what the government well, tells them to do. Still hanging on in education a little bit. In general, the church leadership in Ireland is reckoned to be pretty weak.
0: I'm I'm never very impressed by Martin of Dublin, who seems to be tremendously keen on his media image. Um, But I I do remember during coronavirus, David Martin was being interviewed and he said, well, I've got 200 of my priests in full lockdown because of their advanced age. And the clergy, I think, are older in Ireland than almost anywhere else.
1: I I can imagine that's true. When I've been to Ireland and also I sometimes get Mass online from some of the Irish churches I like, particularly St. Therese in Clarendon Street in Dublin, a beautiful church. And quite often now there are priests from Africa and from India who are now saying Mass. And that's rather nice because when we were young, we had always in every school there was a statuette to Saint Martin de Porres, who was a black, oh, mixed race really, Dominican in, in Latin in South America. And the Irish had great devotion to Saint Martin de Porres. And you put a penny or threepence, threepence, in Saint Martin de Porres' little mission box. And that went to educate the black babies, as we called them. Oh, it. yes.
0: Indeed. So the black
1: babies produced, if you like, uh, generations of priests who are now coming back to Ireland, which is very nice.
0: Just, I just while we were speaking, I quickly googled vocations in the Irish Catholic Church, and that springs mm. in an article from the Tablet. It says <laughs> the Catholic Church in Ireland is living through a vocations pandemic, which, listen to this, will see more new bishops ordained this year than new priests. There may also be an ordination in the Diocese of Dublin and Kilmore later this year. Your generation, your parents' generation, my parents' generation, what an extraordinary thing. There may be a vocation to the priesthood in Dublin. The world has turned upside down, hasn't it?
1: I mean, I suppose things are always changing and things will change again. And there's a lot of sort of searching for spirituality, if you like to put it that way. And I think that that spiritual hunger will be there. My main purpose in trying to write about the way we were is to simply be a witness to the past of in, in all its good and bad ways. And also to see the, that Catholicism was at the foundation of the state. It was part of the Irish identity. You know, the past is still there in the deposit of our culture and we should know about it at least.
0: Mary, such a pleasure to talk to you as ever.